Hello, pod pals, and welcome to the very final season of Best Girl Grip. I am your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing exactly that. Before I introduce today's guest, I suppose I need to address the fact that it's the final season. I began Best Girl Grip in 2019 without ever having made a podcast before, but sensing and seeing that there were lots of amazing women working in the screen industries whose careers sounded intriguing, but also I didn't quite understand what they meant or what they did, and so I set out to interview them and find out. Fast forward to 2023 and some 120 episodes later, I've now produced several podcasts for production companies and brands, and I've also begun to exec produce films in another role as a talent exec for BFI Network. I've been fortunate enough to be on stage at Sundance London and the Edinburgh Film Festival with the podcast and interviewed more people I admire than I ever could have conceived of when I first hit send on an email asking someone to be a guest. And so I feel like this podcast has been, you know, the thing that I wanted it to be and and more than that, a place to be curious and find community and ask stupid questions and get to grips with what it means to work in this industry, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. And honestly, I feel ready to say goodbye, but not without a final hurrah of heroic, hugely inspiring guests, the first of which is producer Helen Gladders. I became aware of Helen's work through the 2016 short film Ronna and Donna, directed by Dana Pusich, and I kept seeing her name popping up everywhere and knew that she was a producer to watch. More things you might want to know about Helen. She is a graduate of the National Film and Television School, having done their MA in producing for film and television. She set up her own company, Gingerbread Pictures, in October 2016 and was nominated for the Best Producer Award at Underwire for her short The Word, written and directed by Chloe Wicks. She's an alumni of the BFI Network's Producer Weekender, the Edinburgh Film Festival Talent Lab and Network at LFF. Her recent short films include Night Bus, directed by former podcast guests Jessica and Henrietta Ashworth, and the Film 4 and BFI Network-backed Run, written and directed by former podcast guest Ruth Greenberg and starring Neve Algar. At the time of recording, she had just delivered her first feature film Tuesday, written and directed by Dana Pusich, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Lola Pettigrew, and backed by A24, BBC Films, BFI and CineReach. And excitingly, the film has since had two festival appearances confirmed. It will premiere at this year's Telluride Festival in the US, followed shortly after by the BFI London Film Festival, where it will screen in the first feature competition. Elsewhere, Helen is busy working on several projects, including debut features from filmmakers Jessica and Henrietta Ashworth, Astrid Torfalton, Mariah Akande, and Zoe Alka. We talk about how Helen discovered a knack for producing, her experience studying at NFTS, establishing a vision and a voice for her production company, the short film funding landscape, what it means to package a project, the differences between producing shorts and features, and how Titanic kick-started both of our fascinations with the film industry. Without further ado, this is episode 125 of Best Girl Grip. Helen, thank you so much for joining me on Best Girl Grip. I'd like to start the interview with thinking about whether there was a specific person, a moment or an experience that you recall that made you consider a career in film. I think I was always really interested in film. 
and I was grown I grew up in quite a kind of filmy household and there was always something on the tv in the background and my parents used to watch a lot of film and tv and I think I can remember when I was about 11 getting really obsessed with Titanic as I think many people our age did it was probably with hindsight one of the first films I'd become obsessed with that wasn't like a children's film so that probably played into it but I got so obsessed with the like behind the scenes stuff and seeing how they created all the sets and all the costumes and you know seeing all that footage of them in the kind of the tanks and just hundreds and hundreds of people and I think there was something about that that was the first time I really realized that there was this whole magical process behind these stories that we see on the screen and I think even though I was so young there was something about that that really clicked in me and I don't come from like a filmy family at all like my parents are are teachers and scientists and so that was it wasn't that I had somebody that I could sort of look up to and be like oh yes like they can help me get into this career but I think I just somewhat stubbornly decided that that's what I wanted to do I did my year 10 work experience at Blockbuster, which was, you know, the best that my secondary school could do where where I was living. But that was really fun and I got to watch a lot of movies there. And I think doing that media course was the first time I actually had a bit of a taste of actually putting a production together. So I produced this, I think the exercise was to produce a trailer for a film. So we did a little shoot and I think there was only like four or five of us in the team and we just something about that experience was so just felt quite natural and like I'd sort of tapped into something that I could do even though it was such so such a small you know project with hindsight but I really kind of just found myself really enamored with the process of making film and reading about it watching as much as I could about it and learning about it and then I decided to study media production at university. So I went to the University of Sussex and I did the media practice and theory course there, which was great actually, because it was a nice combination of practical hands-on stuff and also film theory, building up both of those things at the same time. And we made another short film as a sort of graduation exercise there, which again was a very small team, but we really like had a great time and we got to like build a little set in a studio and we really like went quite extreme with the lighting and kind of creating costumes from charity shops and things like that. And I think that experience really cemented for me that I was on the right track and I wanted to do that. But I don't think I really had a plan (laughs) at that stage. I just knew that I liked it and I wanted to do more of it. It's so funny that Titanic was also the thing that yeah like gave you an awareness of what it meant to produce a film because that was exact I mean we might have even had the same copy but I had a special edition that had like two discs it was such a long film it had to be split over two discs and I remember like pouring over all those behind the scenes and having the same response I remember I used to get um rinsed for saying that it was my favorite film people used to kind of take the mick and be like you have no taste and I was like but the production value <laughs> think think about how difficult it was to make that film so yeah that resonates <laughs> But I was interested there that you said you started making films kind of throughout your media production course. And when you say made, like what role were you taking on? Did you automatically gravitate towards the producer role or was it a bit more kind of hands-on doing everything? I suppose because the team was so small, everybody was sort of doing more than they ever would in a sort of more more professional scale crew. So I think I also did the cinematography for that short, which I now think is hilarious because I 
don't I just you know I see actual cinematographers working now and I'm like there was no way I was ever gonna be able to do that it's such an incredible skill an incredible art form but I think I just felt that that sort of more project management I suppose type role suited me quite well because I liked being across all the different parts of the process but I was also happy to kind of not necessarily be the person that was fully in charge of all of those roles I think it's probably been said on this podcast before, but the producer somewhat is a sort of jack of all trades and a master of none. I think about that constantly, that I just kind of enjoy learning about all these different roles and all these different departments. And obviously, as the scale of projects that I work on gets bigger and bigger, I never cease to be amazed just how much skill and talent is, is involved in those roles. But also, I selfishly, I suppose, kind of enjoy that I get to sort of be a part of that and see how that works and learn more about it. So I guess in some ways, I'm just an older version of that little kid trying to learn about how they made Titanic. I think, yeah, that's one way to put it, the jack of all trades. But I also think it's the master of knowing who all the masters are. You're the person that pulls in all that talent. So yeah, it's not to downplay, you know, the incredible skills that producers have, which we will get onto. But I'm wondering how you applied that awareness of perhaps what you were good at and what you wanted to do to like finding your first job. Did you kind of start looking for roles in production or were you kind of going about it in a more circuitous way? I was trying to think about this because my first job, I got almost straight out of uni, which is very lucky, like with hindsight. And I think I just was looking, I was living in Brighton at the time because I'd uh, been at university there and I really wanted to stay there because all of my friends were there and I, I loved living there so much. And I found a company which is called Back to Back Productions, which is sort of a factual entertainment company. And I think, I can't quite remember how I came across the ad for it now, but they were advertising for an assistant producer role on a show that they were doing that was called Responsible Business Television. And I was like, sounds sexy. Exactly. <laughs> it was great. Um, and I just, I decided to apply for it and I interviewed for it and um, was, was very lucky to be given the role. And it was just these kind of, 10 minute, I suppose like mini documentaries almost that were about sort of an initiative that a company was taking in a company to, you know, improve environment or social impact or things like that. So I actually enjoyed it while well, you're, you're right, it does sound quite dry. Um, I did quite enjoy the kind of research aspect of it and like finding out more about all these different things. And also just learning how something like that, which was to be broadcast on CNBC at the time, was put together and I think I was really surprised how small the team was that made that and obviously the company was working on much bigger projects than that so I think after I'd done that job for a couple of seasons they then started to sort of put me on other projects and that was really fun and I think I've, I've actually not since I had this job gone back to factual or documentary but something in me still really misses that time when you could just get the whole crew and all the kit into one car and just go somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a good arena to cut your teeth on, I think, because things actually get made and at quite a pace. So you're actually getting kind of live production skills. Whereas I think if you come into features, yeah, it's just a different pace of working. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm lucky because I was there for either a year and a half or two years. And I got so many broadcast credits in that time. And I, I think it really helped me understand sort of basic production and how a call sheet works and sort of the things you need to put in place to make sure everyone's there when they need to be, they've got everything they need. So it was invaluable in that way. 
And at what point in your career did you start thinking about the NFTS producing course? And how did that come in, like from the periphery into something that you're like, no, I'm going to apply for this. And this is going to maybe help me step into the next part of my career. I think I might have found out about NFTS almost before I did my undergraduate degree. Because when I think at the time when you sort of Googled practical filmmaking courses in the UK, that was always sort of the first thing that came up. And I remember looking at the website and being like, oh my God, it looks amazing. But obviously it's, it's the courses were postgraduate. So I still needed to like do a degree, but it had always been sort of, I suppose, the next touchstone for me that I really wanted to go there. And I think I first applied when I was doing this job at Back to Back and I had been told that people had to apply like three or four times before they got let in. So I just did this application and sent it off and didn't really expect much to come of it. And I was really shocked when I firstly got an interview and then got invited to the infamous uh, selection workshop that they do, which is a bit like a sort of week-long apprentice (laughs) that they do. And then I was given a place and I was so sort of overwhelmed by that. And I often think back to that time and I think those teachers there that saw something in me that I didn't yet see in myself. And I think they saw my potential in a way that I hadn't really kind of figured out yet. I'm so grateful to them for that because I think going to that school gave me a level of confidence that I I don't know how else I would have I would have achieved. I'm so impressed by people that have sort of gone into making shorts uh, without that grounding because you know arguably you don't need to go to film school it is it's not by any means ne- necessary if you know you've got another route um, figured out but I think for me I I needed that unfortunately maybe needed that validation and I was 23 when I went there so I was quite young but it was it was fantastic. I'm wondering, you know, if by the end of that course, you saw the potential in yourself that they saw in you. It's an interesting question. I think we'll probably get into this <laughs> as we continue. I think I left there feeling more confident and like I sort of had a better grounding in how to make short films, how to work in fiction, because obviously I hadn't actually done that before. And they give you this good grounding in the second year in sort of business and legal. So I felt like I had a great overview of the entire sort of process and the role of the producer but I think I then sort of continue probably to have a slightly rocky relationship where some you know some days you feel like I've got this and I know what I'm doing and then some days you feel quite overwhelmed by it and like it's almost like the more you know the more you realize you don't know yeah having to make peace with that gap and knowing that they're inevitably going to be things that you don't know, but that you're probably resourceful enough to find the answers. Yeah. And also, to be honest, that's something I find quite exciting about the prospect of a career as a producer, because I, I sort of accept that I will never know everything and that every film that I work on will teach me something new and I'll get to learn something I haven't done before. And whether that's working with different people or working in a different genre, there's always something new to be learned and to be gained. And how did you apply that grounding that NFTS gave you to the real world? You know, did you come out with people that you were like trying to make short films with? Or was it very much like you were just sort of, you know, flung out into the film industry and having to start all over again in some respects? I was quite lucky that I quite soon after leaving the film school got a job with Julie Baines at Dan Films. um, And I was working as her assistant for two years. I think I didn't quite have the... Maybe it's confidence, maybe it's financial means to just leave and immediately go independent. And also, to be honest, I don't think I felt 
ready to do that at that time. I felt like I needed to sort of learn more and build a larger network before I could set up my own company. And I, I had a really good experience working there and I, they produced a couple of feature films while I was there. And obviously I was an assistant to the producer, so I, I wasn't in the kind of big rooms where things were happening, but just sort of getting a sense of the day-to-day of working in a, a company like that and um, seeing how independent producers operate, I think was really, really useful. And I did produce a couple of short films while I was there. Like, they were really generous in that they gave me the, the time off to go and, and shoot other things. And that was that was brilliant. But it did take me maybe a little bit longer to go out because I didn't set up Gingerbread Pictures, my company, until 2016. So I'd been, I was two and a half years out of the film school by that point. Why did you set that up then? Was it out of necessity or did it just feel like the right time Like you knew enough to kind of, of how to not run a company, I guess run a company, but I think that also makes it sound quite scary where it, whereas it is sometimes like just setting something up on, you know, company's house and it's still very much just one person. But what was the impetus behind that for you? That year, so earlier in 2016, they did, I, think, I suppose, the first more recent wave of the Vision Awards, the BFI's scheme for supporting sort of companies and that year it was for emerging producers so people that hadn't made their first feature yet or maybe had made up to one or two and I was encouraged um by by Dan Films to to apply for it and just see see if I could get some funding and I got an interview for that which again I was quite surprised about (laughs) um and I wasn't ultimately successful but there was something about going through that process of really sitting and thinking about what I wanted to do longer term that I could almost not come back from. So once I'd sort of gone through that process and thought that through and sort of mentally set myself on that journey, it then sort of felt like I needed to follow that even though I hadn't successfully got that funding. It was a bit of a risk. I think I had two development commissions at that time, but obviously that's only a couple of thousand pounds here and there. But I sort of was like, well, I can pay my rent for the next three or four months so I'll just make the jump and see see what happens so yeah it was it was scary but also I just felt like it was the right time to give it give it a go and to back myself and what did happen you know what was the first kind of like six months to a year like how did you hustle and establish yourself and you know make it work my memory of that time is actually like quite idyllic, which is quite funny because I'm sure it didn't feel like that at the time <laughs> that I felt like I was reading a lot and I was I had a couple of short films that I'd completed um around that time so they were sort of being released into the world and doing the festival circuit um and then I also got two projects including um Tuesday my first feature development commissioned in that time but I also just sort of have a memory of just spending a lot of time reflecting and trying to sort of almost mentally prepare myself for this next phase so I had a few things on the go, but it wasn't super intense, I wouldn't say. And given that you applied for the BFI Vision Awards and the name of what that award is, like, what was your vision for Gingerbread? Like, did you have a real sense of the directors and the stories that you wanted to tell and work with? You know, did you really formulate a plan for the next four or five years? Or was it more just about yourself and like what you wanted to achieve as uh, a producer? It's a good question, because I think I still slightly struggle with this this uh, question of what my company is and and what it sort of represents but I think I'd always focused on female filmmakers that was quite important to me and it it felt like some small thing I could do to help address that massive imbalance that is improving but still exists unfortunately 
I think I was really clear that I wanted to make genre leaning projects and that's purely because I think I have always had quite commercial taste because I, I grew up watching very commercial films and I'm of the Spielberg generation so <laughs> that's sort of the stuff that I I enjoyed watching and so that's what I wanted to make and then sort of pairing that with hopefully a more unique perspective because I was backing filmmakers that maybe hadn't worked in genre as much historically I think there's a quote I heard relatively recently that I now can't remember who it was from about how there are no new stories but there are new perspectives and I think something about that really chimed with me that it's there's a lot of scope to still tell stories that maybe you've seen before from a different angle and that's really exciting so I think I've just stuck with that kind of genre idea and the sorts of filmmakers that I'm backing although that's probably refined over the years so I suppose those building blocks are still the same but it's an ongoing question about what what my company's identity is no it's still a, it's such a valid answer and I know it's not a film that you produce but you work with the writers Jessica and Henrietta and they just wrote Firebrand and I, I think I emailed you saying that I the thing that stagged me most was that we know this story we know Henry VIII and his six wives and we've seen the Tudors probably and you know all of that malarkey but it felt so fresh because it's being told from Catherine Parr's perspective who always gets forgotten about in favour of you know the more sort of sexy and sordid story of Anne Boleyn and and seeing a Henry VIII that we hadn't seen before and I think you're so right in in that regard in that you you can tell what ostensibly seems like the same story but it feels completely new because you've shifted who the focus is on. Yeah absolutely and I think I'm really proud of, of Jessica and Henrietta for that huge achievement and it was so like moving to see it on that big screen in Cannes like what an incredible achievement and I think that's sort of that's a good that's a good example I suppose of choosing filmmakers that are sort of like-minded to you because I think Jessica and Henrietta like you say have quite similar sensibilities to myself in that they've grown up with a certain type of films and they enjoy watching certain type of films and that's the sort of material that we want to make together and I was really lucky to be introduced to them. We often joke that we had a sort of blind date first meeting um, <laughs> where a sort of mutual friend thought we'd get on. And I think we were all a bit awkward, but we just really clicked. We've had a great time. And obviously um, they've been on the podcast before to talk about uh, Night Bus, which was their directorial debut short. And we're now working on their first feature together, which is which is really exciting as well. Hugely exciting. And we should mention that you produced that short night bus and you've produced many, many shorts. You know, you're incredibly prolific. And I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit how the funding landscape has changed, whether, you know, from the first short that you produced to the last one, whether you noticed the difference in how they got off the ground and whether it was easier or, you know, more difficult. Yeah. What has your experience been of finding funding for shorts? It's such a good question and I think I've certainly noticed over the years that the funding for shorts has become a lot more competitive. I think because there's less of it around and that's quite scary actually because I think I, I can't really get my head around how that doesn't form like a bottleneck with talent development because you know obviously now I'm sort of maybe stepping more into features world. I'm looking back and I know that I need those short films that I made to help sell the filmmaker's debut feature so if people aren't able to make those films, I'm not quite sure how they make that step, which most people want to do. Like most people want to make a feature film. That's the ultimate goal. I often speak with many of my friends, including Dinah Pusish, who's who was the writer-director of Tuesday. We all met on this scheme that Creative England ran in, I think, 2015 called Funny Girls. And it was called, I think, iShorts Plus at the time. 
And it was five female-led comedy shorts. And I think we were given £15,000 each to go and produce a short. And everybody that's come out of that scheme has done so well. And they're all really soaring and it's really impressive. And it's such a shame that that scheme was never able to come back and sort of give a new, new group of filmmakers that opportunity as well. It's definitely become more challenging. I was actually looking at I was looking at my list of shorts uh, before I joined you to try and remind myself how they'd all been funded. And actually a couple of them were self-funded. So they were very small and the filmmakers had uh, intentionally designed them to be in a location that they had access to with maybe one or two actors that were friends of theirs and required quite a small crew. And I think that is that is another way of doing it. So they didn't have any funding from a public funder or another source. It was just sort of, we've got 600 pounds or a thousand pounds between this group of people and we can just go and shoot something in a day and we've made something. And it's quite hard to execute that for certain filmmakers. Like all these, the two I'm thinking about, they'd already made quite a few shorts before so maybe they were better placed to be able to create something with such restraints but I wonder now more if unfortunately that has to be how people make work but more more recently I have been lucky I suppose with with funders and run which I produced with Ruth Greenberg who has also been on the podcast that was backed by Film 4 and BFI Network so that was that was public funders and that was a brilliant experience and Night Bus was funded by a company called Peer Pressure a funding company that had just started at the time and I think they backed a few female-led shorts and they were really interested in Jessica and Henrietta as, as talents and wanted to support them. It's hard to give advice to producers now that are trying to get shorts off the ground because I feel like I came up at a relatively privileged time in that regard. But I think it's just keeping your ear to the ground about opportunities because there are sort of funds that pop up every so often and sometimes they don't last very long. Yeah, and I think about codging lots of different funding sources together, which I think most grants are aware of, you know, that they can't maybe fund the whole budget, so they're not opposed to you kind of match funding or finding sources elsewhere. So I think maybe it's a bit more of like a puzzle piece than perhaps it used to be where, yeah, you could maybe get two public funders and you were sort of sorted, but hopefully that doesn't deter people. But also like thinking about that, I'm guessing it would be really interesting to hear from your perspective how you made those shorts work for you. Because as you say, it's quite easy for it to be a calling card for a writer-director. Like it's all there on the screen, you know, what their voice is and what they've kind of been channeling their sort of energies and um, inspirations towards. But for a producer, it's much more difficult, I think, to make visible what your contribution was. So once you had this catalogue of shorts, what were you then doing to kind of boost your profile or go out to people and say look what I've done it's such a good question and I don't know if I ever did a great job of promoting myself in that way (laughs) to be honest but I think I particularly when I think about the last sort of three or four shorts I was always asking myself what would I learn from this as as a producer and sort of what is there to gain from it because I think I did get to a stage where I was like I can't just keep making that they're so as anyone that's ever made a short knows, they're so kind of all-consuming and tiring, um, even though they're they're shorts. <laughs> it's funny, they seem like they should be easier, but somehow they're not. And so I'd always ask myself, you know, what would what would be inherent in that project that I could reassure myself was advancing me somehow? And sometimes that would be a talent relationship, or sometimes it would be a, a funder relationship. Or sometimes it would just be a a technical or um, creative 
thing that I hadn't done before. So I just made sure that I was sure that I was advancing every time, even though that doesn't necessarily mean the budget was bigger. I'm very lucky that many of the filmmakers that I made shorts with, I'm now developing features with. So somewhere I learned something <laughs> that was that was useful. I think that's a good piece of advice, though, to ask yourself, like, what tangibly are you getting from this? Like, rather than just, oh, I'll make another short because what else am I going to do? But actually, like, yeah, really interrogating how it's going to service you. Um, but speaking of features, you obviously mentioned Tuesday, uh, a film that you're in post on. I'd love for you to, like, give us a little bit of a teaser of what it's about, but then also how it satisfies your tastes. You know, what was it about that project that spoke to you? Tuesday, I think... The, uh, the sort of main way we can describe it at the moment is a mother-daughter fairy tale. And I think for me, I started working on the project with Dinah quite soon after we'd finished making our short, Runner and Donna, together. And I still consider that such a sort of fortunate uh, meeting. Like I was introduced to her by a mutual friend of ours. And I just was like immediately enamoured by her. I thought she was so smart and so funny and just had this kind of incredible sensibility in the way she spoke about the stories that she wanted to tell. And we had such a good time making that short together. Like it was it was a lot of fun. So I was really I was really happy when she came to me with her her script for early draft of Tuesday and said, you know, let's work on it together. So in a way, I think at that time, I was just like, I'd love to work with Dinah again. And it was it was born out of that sort of personal relationship. But it also has a sort of creature aspect to it that I was really excited by, again, being of the Spielberg generation. <laughs> like, always thought creatures, monsters, and again, the, the craft of that and how you achieve that was something that I was so interested in in learning and it it is funny that I think initially we were developing the draft of that script and I certainly hadn't quite got my head around how we were going to achieve that but we sort of just stayed in the story at that early stage and slightly kicked that can down the road and I think it's the script changed quite a lot through the development process but it had this really powerful emotional core to it which is what I think I really responded to and it's something that I think I now actively look for in scripts like is there something in that story that really moves me or resonates with me and that's that's why I felt it was so special. I want to come back to the development process and talk about your involvement in that because I do think that's something that's often misunderstood about producing but you've mentioned twice now how you've been introduced to directors that you're subsequently working with through mutual friends and I think that's really interesting and I'm wondering like what you think you're putting out there that enables people to be like oh yes you'll be a good fit to talk to Helen is that just something you know unconscious or like are you being quite vocal about your tastes or is it just how you hold yourself it is funny sometimes when people sort of ask me if there's some kind of trick that I use to find new talent because I'm just like I think I just I always self-identified as being a sort of slightly nerdy uh genre loving producer and I think Maybe then when people encounter filmmakers that have that sensibility, like whether that's their personality type or what they they think of me. So I think I was always quite open about being more commercially focused. Um, and that's not necessarily in terms of scale. It's just in terms of creative. And again, I think when I when I meet new filmmakers now, I very much assess the kind of chemistry there. And if, if I feel like we're just going to have a nice rapport. And I almost think, you know, if it's somebody that you would love to just go and have a drink with anyway even if you weren't working together then that's the sort of relationship that I really like having with a filmmaker that I'm working with 
Yeah, 100%. Um, and then coming back to the development, can you talk a little bit maybe about some of the, the big changes, structural or otherwise, that Tuesday underwent and kind of what role you were playing in that, you know, how you're facilitating that development with Dinah? It's hard to fully talk about without spoiling it. <laughs> but I think I hadn't been through that process before in this way where you're reading drafts. We also were working with Ivana McKinnon, who joined the process quite early on as well. Ivana is the producer behind British films such as Beast and Molly Manning Walker's directorial debut, How to Have Sex, which is being released by Mubi in cinemas uh, in November, early November, I think. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and she's really talented at development. So I really enjoyed sort of learning from her how she works as a producer in that process as well and it was sort of navigating I suppose we were sort of finding what the story was at its core and how to best execute that story and you're also sort of navigating you're getting notes from executives at the funders and sometimes those notes are really really resonant and quite easy to implement and sometimes they're a bit more kind of left field and maybe you have to find a a happy halfway to to implement them without sort of throwing the the story off course because I think I've had an experience before where you're, you're going through development and you just sort of take all the notes and then you get really really lost further down the line but Dinah was absolutely brilliant and I think she always was so clear on what she wanted to achieve that she at least made it seem more effortless <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure she wouldn't describe it that way herself I think for me it's always about keeping like so in touch with your gut instinct like I think you'll be able to like feel it in your body if a note is something that you've maybe thought about yourself like it's often an answer to a question that you've maybe had in the back of your mind and then for me it's always a no scrunch if like a note just doesn't sit well I'm like mm. <laughs> like no <laughs> don't love that <laughs> like I think you'll just be able to tell usually if like a note is worth listening to or not definitely that was what was uh, trickier in the the zoom years that you couldn't you had to sort of hide your immediate reaction sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah I'm not so good at that um and then obviously I'd love to know how the reality of producing a feature matched up to you know expectation and how different it felt to producing a sh yeah a short film and obviously the stamina required on on those two things is markedly different yeah I think it's an interesting time to be thinking about that question because we only delivered the film a couple of weeks ago so I think I'm very much in that, yeah, I'm very much in that, you know, what what was that all? What did it all mean? And I think there were times when, particularly in the prep for the film, that was really, really full on and intense for the whole team for quite a long time, because we almost went in spring 2020, but obviously the universe had other plans. And we only ended up shooting the film in summer sort of 2021. So there was this sort of year long period where we were working constantly so hard all the time. Obviously, it was the pandemic. So there was a lot of kind of emotional stuff going on around that as well. And just the world at that time. And I, I often think Tuesday was like, I was so lucky that I had this project to sort of cling to and carry me through that time. But I definitely had a few times in that lead up where I got completely overwhelmed by it. And it's sort of a, a slightly a personal thing as well that I probably need to do some more work on that I I would have days where I just felt like it was too big for me and that I shouldn't be there but someone should come and uh, take me out of this role because I don't it's so big and I didn't quite feel worthy of it I suppose which is a strange thing to say because obviously logically I knew I'd I'd been there from the start and 
had a really good relationship with the filmmaker, but I found it far more overwhelming than I ever anticipated. But then the flip side of that is sometimes you'd have these days on set where maybe a couple of your departments are having a disagreement about something and you're running out of time and there's no parking for this. And, and that was kind of reassuringly familiar because it was so similar to things that happened on short films. So it was a bit of a roller coaster. And I think that it just it was an, a real education about the role of a producer, because I think I also realised through the process of making that debut that so many of the things that I had considered my job when I was making shorts are actually not the jobs of a producer at a feature film level so you know I suppose when you're making shorts you're much more involved in the production and the logistics aspect of it but when you're in a feature you've got a brilliant team of people that can do that probably far better than you can. I even remember having a, a conversation with our line producer, Tim Dennison, who was really kind to me because I <laughs> I came into the process and I was like, Tim, I've not actually worked with a line producer before. I haven't had a line producer on a, on a show ever. So I was like, you know, just tell me what you need me to do or if I'm doing something that's stepping on your toes, just let me know. And um, I think when we were crewing, I'd sort of we'd maybe find, say, an HOD that we wanted to hire. And I'd, I'd say, OK, this is the person that we want to bring on. And Tim would go, cool, well, I'll negotiate their deal. And I was like, what? Like, I don't have to negotiate their deal. I was like, this is great. <laughs> so, there were just small things like that that I think I'd always slightly thought were in my in my realm that I then found were actually, were actually things that I could delegate. And that really, I suppose, freed me up more to have that oversight of what the project needed. What was it that you found yourself focusing on with that, like, with that energy that you suddenly had free? I mean, I suppose there's also elements of the the process at a feature level that you don't quite have in the same way with shorts. So, like, there's the whole kind of legal closing aspect. Um, and obviously there's sort of maybe a smaller version of that you might have to do on a short if you've got multiple funders, but it's usually not not too stressful. But obviously, I think our closing process, I think we needed 72 documents to close the film. And I'm I'm really lucky. I've got great, really supportive lawyers who very much like hand held me through that process. Otherwise, I think I wouldn't have, have known what to do at all. And they were there to answer all my all my questions and, and sort of wrangle it. But I suppose I, f I found early on in the process, I was doing a lot of that at that time and just reading contracts and making sure things fitted together and and also I suppose the the talent management aspect of it like Julia Louis-Dreyfus was the the lead in the film and she was fantastic but there was sort of a lot of before she arrived in the UK sort of doing doing the deal and working out how you're going to look after that person while they're in London to sort of support them and make sure they've got everything they need that was a whole kind of operation that I hadn't had to do before not to say that was like a bad experience but it's just not something I'd had to do before because I'd usually worked with like London-based actors if I was shooting in London or it's sort of a bit more straightforward so that was a learning curve as well I want to come back to that point that you made about feeling overwhelmed and I'm wondering if that was you know just the scale of your like to-do list or if there was anything about the particulars of this project that made it particularly challenging and how you mitigated that on the days that you were like oh my god so much to do. I think it was a, a probably a cocktail of things. I think I mean, I was working with two other producers on the project, so Ivana McKinnon and Oliver Roskill. And I think I did speak to them about it at the time. So it's quite funny when I think back on it now. I think early on, I was just comparing myself to them. And I was just being like, they know all these things and they, they're so incredible and they know the next move and they're so sort of confident and assured. And then obviously, I think I spoke to them about that and they were just like, well, 
it's your first film. <laughs> like, of course, you don't have to know everything that they know when they've produced three or four features. So I think they were both really kind and, and liberated me from that pressure that I was putting myself under. I think also the main challenge that I had absolutely no experience of going in was this kind of visual effects challenge of the film. So again, don't want to do spoilers, but one of the characters is a sort of fully CG character that has to perform and emote and interact with the, the actors. And that was fascinating, kind of learning how to figure that out. But it was also just this whole element of the production that was quite quite big and obviously a lot of the other departments had to work together to service that but I hadn't done it before and it was just like this whole big thing that I had to figure out and um not I say me not me on my own obviously but it was sort of another aspect that I maybe hadn't had to take into account in previous productions but we had a, a brilliant team working on that that creature and our visual effects team were fantastic and we had a creature effects team on the ground and I did have that sort of magical moment on the set when I was sort of watching everyone working together and I was just like, this is incredible. I think you've done a brilliant job of whetting our appetites. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I'm so excited to see it with an audience and, and see how it's received. And then I'm wondering, you know, if you've ever been on a production where you can kind of see or feel that something isn't going according to plan, you know, or even that it's not quite turning out to be the short film or the film that you had anticipated it would be, you know, how do you talk yourself off that ledge to stay in the present moment or try and steer it in another direction and kind of, you know, salvage it? I think, unfortunately, something goes wrong on every single shoot if not multiple things. <laughs> so I think something that I've always, I suppose, quite naturally done is try and maintain a level head. And I really, I feel like if you at least outwardly appear calm, everyone else will stay calm. And I think um, it was Chloe Wicks, uh, who was a brilliant writer-director that I've also worked with. Um, we used to have this joke that my aunts would always be like, there's always a solution. There's always a solution. I didn't always know what the solution was, but obviously... I knew that it would be figured out because it, it has to be. There's sort of no way around it. So I think I always try to like <laughs> coolly and, and calmly approach those those issues as they arise. For the most part, most most issues you objectively know can be can be resolved. Like we were shooting during the tail end of the pandemic. So we had quite strict COVID protocols in place. And I think when we were shooting was when they were they had that ping app. Thing. So if you came within, I can't remember what it was now, like 10 meters of somebody that then tested positive, you'd get a ping and you had to isolate for 10 days. And that was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> because we'd just be like, oh no, like literally any member of this crew could could be pinged at any time. And then we'd lose them. And there was a huge crew shortage at that time because so much stuff had sort of all started shooting at the same time. So there was that terrifying feeling of oh, we might lose someone really crucial and also not be able to replace them. Um, so that was a kind of... I think shooting in those conditions was was really, really challenging for a number of reasons. And I definitely would not be in a rush to do that again. I hope that we don't have to. Yeah, touch wood. And given the heightened nature of production and like the intensity that, and like you're, you're just having to, yeah, as you say, like fight fires and come up with solutions and almost like give this performance as you say that you're, you're calm and you know how to solve things. 
what on earth do you do to decompress? In body, mind and soul, I just imagine you must get like sick straight after a production ends and coming back to all these emails. How do you just get back to a state of zen and a state of you? <laughs> I mean, I think at the moment I'm maybe still trying to get back to that place. <laughs> but um, I think it's maybe what I've learned over the years is, is to sort of try and be a bit kinder to yourself in those moments when there maybe is a bit more of a lull in your workflow and I think like at the moment I'm sort of entering a, a period where I'm doing a lot of a lot more development and I'm trying to sort of package two films which is still busy but it's not this kind of working 14 hours a day and running around all over the place type of vibe and I think previously I might have looked at that and been like oh well, you're not doing enough and you're not working hard enough and you're you should be putting more hours in but I think now I've got to a point where I'm like no I if it's a bit quieter, especially like we're going into the summer, summer tends to be a bit quieter. I'm kind of given myself more permission to kind of enjoy that and just work at the pace that serves what I'm doing without sort of doing busy work and trying to fill my schedule. And I think once you give yourself permission to do that, you can sort of hopefully save up enough energy so that if you have to go again, you've got the reserves We've actually never talked about this on the podcast before, but what is packaging? What does that entail? What does that require of you? What are you doing in that moment? Yeah, it sounds like such a, a buzzy phrase, doesn't it? So packaging is, at least my understanding of it, usually starts with a script. So com a sort of nearly completed script. You're attaching the actors to the project. So you're offering that um, script to cast, um, which can be quite a lengthy process because you usually have to send it out exclusively and then you have to wait for that person to read it and then you hear the response. Obviously the writers and the directors are also part of that package. They've already been involved in the script. And then once you've got your actors and your talent sort of together, then you're probably attaching the finance for the film. So I suppose those creative elements together, which can also involve HODs as well, if you've got them involved at that early stage, is the sort of the offer <laughs> to the to the industry and you know it's the collection of elements that will allow somebody to buy into the project so it's almost like the explicit commercialization of the story like you're 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 making it look and sound financially viable for you know people to kind of buy and distribute down the line yeah and there's also some like really fun kind of creative elements to that as well like you'll usually do like a deck that the directors created and that's quite fun sometimes to share that with people and see how they respond to it because that's obviously you've got the story on the page but also seeing some of the visuals or with one of the ones I'm working on there's also another creature element to it and so sort of visuals for that creature and what's that that's going to look like and what that's going to feel like I suppose it's sort of a collection of things to help people imagine what that film's going to be when there's sort of no tangible material for them to see and I suppose that begs the question, like, how do you balance your slate? You know, when you have, for instance, a feature such as Tuesday that was in post-production or that you're closing on, and then you might have others that are in early development that you're working on a package for, and then maybe others in even earlier development. Like, how are you deciding what is your priority at any one time and making sure that, you know, the writers and directors that you're working with don't feel neglected? I think that is such a challenge, especially I work just me. Um, I'm a, a one-woman operation still. So... I think with Tuesday, I was quite fortunate in that the filmmakers that I was working with sort of understood that that had to be the priority and that I suppose another way of looking at it is that me making that film hopefully then makes it easier to make their films. So 
I was lucky to be working with people that kind of looked at it in that way. I definitely was not able to do any development for at least a year or maybe, you know, as in it just sort of having the headspace to to read a script and, and give notes on it. I, I just, yeah, <laughs> I could not do at that time. But I think everybody that I was working with had sort of other projects on the go and it sort of worked out, although perhaps more by luck than design. But I think it did really make me understand why it's so important if you know you get to that stage where you can employ somebody to kind of help you support your development slate while you're off physically producing something else and I think with with Tuesday it was quite late in the post-production process where I sort of felt like I was mentally freed up enough to to get back stuck into other projects but I think in terms of this stage I'm at now you sort of have a sense of which ones are slightly further along and which ones are still a sort of an earlier development stage so it's always a bit of a gamble because you're you obviously just have to push everything along as fast as it will go and hope that it'll work out (laughs) to some extent because obviously you could design them to be made in a certain order but it doesn't always work out that way so how do you sustain the energy to be the engine behind each of those projects is there something that you come back to is it like looking at the deck again or rereading the script that kind of revivifies you know what caught your attention in the first place Because I, over the years, have found myself curating the group of people that I work with so that I really like them, all of them, (laughs) it kind of is that personal connection, to be honest. It's it's that I, I already love the project because that's the reason that I've started working on it in the first place, but also just being like, I want, I want that filmmaker to make that film and I want them to have that moment. And I suppose there's a sense of, of duty there almost like, I want that to happen so I'm gonna keep pushing everything along and making sure they get that opportunity that I believe that they deserve and will really excel at. I'm wondering if there's a piece of advice that you've been given um, that has like steered your course or stayed with you throughout your career that you come back to. I went to a talk at LFF like years and years ago and I wish I could remember the producer that said this because it really has like stayed with me so strongly but this idea that as long as you push forward something in your slate in your career every single day you're still achieving something because I think you have these weeks every so often where I don't know you've had three no's on that project or that you know your slate and you feel quite down and like you've maybe not achieved anything and it's quite difficult sometimes to then kind of get get back up or you know maybe you feel like it's been quiet lately and nothing's happening or you maybe can't see where your next project's going to come in and those sort of times feel a bit scary and I think that idea that you can send an email read a script watch a short film something like that you're still progressing every single day um even if it's not in a kind of big moves way and obviously those small moves every single day add up and I think I try to like ground myself back in that uh, quite often And then I guess that's touching on like sustaining yourself creatively. I'm wondering, you know, when you're not sure when the next like commission is going to come in or project, like what are you doing to sustain yourself financially? Is it just about having savings and knowing that you can use them if you need to? Is it about doing other work? Like, do you have other jobs on the side you can kind of fall back on? Yeah, I think that is, unfortunately for independent producers, one of the biggest challenges is that kind of financial sustainability. And I think I obviously was working as an assistant for a couple of years when I was making shorts. So that that was an income stream. 
Um, when I was working for myself, I did a lot of work at the NFTS. So I was tutoring students there and doing teaching work there and working in the scholarships department and things like that, which I really enjoyed, actually. I think that, you know, obviously I was being being paid for that and that was necessary. But I think also I really felt like I was helping other filmmakers and that meant quite a lot to me and then at the moment even since we finished Tuesday I'm doing a contract for Paramount in their TV team as a creative producer so that was a sort of short short contract but it's allowed me to learn more about TV and that whole world that I've not really explored yet so I think it is sort of trying to balance the reality of of what you need to live in, particularly in, in London, with your own projects. And I think sometimes that's really difficult. Like there was a period last year when I was doing this freelance job and also trying to sort of re-energize my slate at the same time. And that was quite full on. But I think in those in those situations, I'm always just quite honest with the filmmakers that I'm working with. And I'm lucky to be working with people that are quite understanding of that. And if we need to have a meeting on a Saturday or it's going to take me an extra couple of weeks to turn that thing around, then they're sympathetic to that. I think quite often because the filmmakers are in the same boat that people have to juggle other jobs. But, you know, hopefully at some time in the future, I'll sort of be able to earn enough from my film work that I can sustain myself off of that. That's the goal, ultimately. I'm interested there in the fact that you obviously spoke about wanting to get to know more about TV and I'm wondering if that is something that you felt like has changed um, in, in terms of the, the length of time that you've been doing this job. What do you feel like to be a producer now in the film industry also just encompasses TV as well, whether it's kind of foolish to turn your nose up at that because, you know, it's, it's so integral now to, I feel like, the on, just on screen and the screen industries in general. I think it's such an interesting question because... I think particularly having done this job that I've just been doing, it's made me realise how producing a TV show is an enormous undertaking. Obviously, making a, making a film is a huge undertaking, but TV, the schedules are longer, the, the budgets are bigger. There's a lot more infrastructure required to support that. And I think me as an individual at the moment, this experience has taught me that I'm not ready to do that just yet. Obviously, there are many brilliant producers who probably maybe can <laughs> can step up to that. But for me, I was like, OK, this has been a very humbling experience and maybe I'm not quite there yet. But I think it's when I think about what I am watching for fun at the moment, a lot of it is TV. And it's like, you know, Yellow Jackets and Succession and White Lotus. And I'm like, that work is so impressive and cinematic and exciting. I think there's some hopefully really exciting synergy to be found between like really exciting filmmakers and that TV format that like lets them do their thing on an even bigger scale. So I'm, I'm all for that. It's not to say that you necessarily have to do both. I think it is hopefully still a choice, but it's an interesting moment where it almost feels like those two industries creatively are almost almost on par. Yeah, absolutely. And I often think of all the women directors that are in, still in this industry because of TV and, and the gigs that they get from that. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's cinematic, but it's also it's like such a necessary kind of livelihood, I think, for a lot of directors. And finally, I'd love to know if there's a film or TV show um, by a woman director that you'd like to recommend today. I'd love to recommend a film called Jumbo by a filmmaker called Zoe Whittock that premiered in Sundance in 2020, although I, to my shame, only saw it sort of last year. And it's a love story between a young woman and a roller coaster. And that sounds really crass, but 
it was so like moving and affecting and I was just so impressed by how it was very it was a debut film it was very kind of uh, gentle and told like a classic love story but just with this obviously element of the love interest being an inanimate object and it sort of slightly steered into a sci-fi territory almost but it also remained very grounded emotionally and I was just so impressed by how I watched this film and I just completely went on that journey with the character and I don't think that's necessarily an easy thing to execute because we've probably seen news articles about people you know marrying their pet another inanimate object and you sort of brush them off and it was quite interesting to be put in the position where you're taken on that emotional journey so I thought that was a really interesting kind of way into that story brilliant yeah I've heard of it but I haven't seen it I feel like maybe it slightly got overshadowed by Tatane in that year um another kind of relationship with an inanimate object um but also stars Naomi Merlon right from Portrait of a Lady on Fire yes that's right who's brilliant in it another reason to watch it thank you for that recommendation Helen and thank you so much for coming on the podcast I'm so grateful that you took the time to speak with me today it's kind of been um yeah long in the making so yeah thank you so much no my pleasure excited to be here Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe and spread the good word. If you're interested in other interviews, the producers, check out my episodes with Jeannie Igo, Katie Sinclair, Chi Tai, Emily Morgan, Emma Norton, Sarah Brocklehurst and Ellen Shakerafar. In the meantime, have a great week and I'll be back next Friday with a brand new episode. Thank you.